Good morning. God is good. And all the time, God is good. Well, we come to the end of 1 John. And uh, today we're going to look at verses 13 through 21. So if you'll please take your Bibles. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 5, 13 through 21 this morning. And, uh, and I trust that as we close out this series of sermons this morning, that God will, you know, just as he's touched your hearts during the music portion of the service, I trust he'll do so as we go through this message this morning. 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have, requ- we have requests which we have we have the request which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, But he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, Guard yourself from idols. Let's pray. Father, give us clarity of thought and heart and mind that we would rightly divide the word of truth, that we would have understanding as what your word is telling us. And Father, that uh, we would have the resolve, Lord, to do that which your word asks of us, that we would observe that which you've commanded us. Father, we, we as a people of this church, Father, we seek to, to, to live an, a life and, and, and leave here with a life, Father, that is pleasing to you. We bless you. We thank you in Jesus' name for allowing us to meet today. Lord, this worship service is, is about you. It's not about us, Father, but about you. And we just bless you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to verse 13, we come to the conclusion of John's epistle, and he makes a, 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 a summary statement as to why he has written this epistle. And if you look at verse 13, he says, these things, that is the, the, the content of the, of the epistle, the letter, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's writing this to Yuns, right? He's writing it to the church. These things I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants you to know that you have eternal life. Now, this verse 13 sounds very familiar to the verse that he has in John chapter 20 and verse 31, where he gives a a, a summation as a purpose why he's written his 
gospel. It says in John 20, 31, but these things, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like both of them are the same, but they're, they're different. And, you know, with careful observation, you can see that they're different. There, there are, these, there, there, there are these, uh, these nuances in there that we should take a look at. In the Gospel of John, we should note that it is written primarily to people who are unbelievers. What you have in the Gospel of John is, is John's presenting a, an, an account of the life of Jesus that is meant for people who have, who have not heard the gospel before. They have, not been, they have not been acquainted with Jesus very much. So he writes, he writes this gospel in order that the person who is the unbeliever can hear the gospel story about the fact that Jesus Christ is God. The emphasis of the, the, the gospel of John is to show that Jesus is God, that he is deity. But when we come to the epistles, uh, the, his, his, his epistles, first, it's not, his, his primary focus is not to show that Jesus is God, but to show that Jesus is human. So why would he have it in one that Jesus is God and the other that Jesus is human? Well, because there were some heretics back then called the Gnostics, and they didn't believe that Jesus and God were just one person. They believed that, they believed that there was a Christ, and they believed that there was a Jesus. But when, when, uh, when Jesus was baptized, that the Christ entered him, and then the Christ left him just at the time of the crucifixion. So they believe in two different beings, a Jesus who's human and a Christ who's divine. Folks, that's heresy. If you believe that, if you believe that, you're, 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 you're treading on ground that I, I guarantee you is sure to sink. Uh, that, that, that kind of thinking will not lead you to glory. That kind of thinking is absolutely a sin that, that will reside within you and lead you straight to the very pits of hell. To believe that Jesus and Christ are two different people. Jesus is the God-man. He has a divine nature and a human nature. There is but one Jesus Christ, not two. He's not an emanation of God. Jesus Christ is God. That's why John wrote the gospel. Jesus is God. He writes the epistle, Jesus is human. And he says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You'll see that in, in, verse, in verse 13 of our text, that you may know that you have eternal life. There are two words for know, K-N-O-W, not N-O, but K-N-O-W. There are two words in the Greek for know. One is oida, and the other is gnosko. Now, when we say know in English, like I know you, I know what you're going to do, uh, I know that the pastor is going to hold us past 12 o'clock, when you know, we just have one word for no, and it's no. But the Greeks had two words. One is oida, and one is gnosko. So when he says, so that you may know that you have eternal life, he uses the word oida. That means that you know perfectly, you know instinctively, you know intuitively. You're absolutely, absolutely 100% sure. That you know. It's like, I know myself. I know me. I know me better than anybody else knows me in this room. Because I know me. 
And if you knew me like I know me, you wouldn't want me to be here. That's the kind of no that he's talking about. He says that you may know that you're absolutely 100% sure, intuitively, instinctively, perfect knowledge that God is your Savior, that Jesus is your Savior. Jesus who is God is your Savior. He says, I want you to know that perfectly. The readers of this epistle had been infiltrated by these false teachers I mentioned, you call the Gnostics, and they were under the influence and teaching of those who hold to a heretical view concerning Scripture. What would be the result of that? If, if we had somebody in this church who was teaching, and they were heretical in their doctrine, and you sat in their class, or he was, God forbid, was a preacher, and he was teaching you heresy, and you listen to him week after week, month after month, and year after year, and he's teaching and preaching heresy. Guess what that would do to you? You would become unsettled in all your ways. You become unsure of your own spiritual position. He would be destroying you. What is needed then, in order for us to combat false teaching, what is needed is that we would put to the test, put to the test that which is being taught. And by that I mean that it would do us well to read, listen, to read and listen and attend to those things which give the Bible its proper standing. I tell you this because we have so many books out there. You know, do people still read books? You know, I know people read computers. But good night, you know, it's really hard to dog ear a computer. But, you know, when I read books, I, I, I mark in them, and I write little notes in them. They're little notes to myself. I, I guess you can do that on a computer, but you know, listen, folks, I'm going to tell you something. My, my, my typing skills are very biblical. Seek, and you shall find. <laughs> so I don't do much typing, but I do a lot of writing. It is important to what you read and who you read. There are some books out there that if they were not stacked on top of each other, they would float away because they are so theologically light. It's not worth you giving your time to them. I would throw them in the trash. I would burn them because they're not worth reading. If, if there's a book in there that absolutely is, is just... Is, is just the opposite of what Scripture would teach you. And it's so light and fluffy that it doesn't challenge your mind, that there's no way for you to analyze it. You just look at it and say, what is this person talking? Listen, folks, don't read it. Get rid of it. But there are wonderful authors out there. There are some great books out there, people that you should be reading and listening to. You know, as, as, one, as one person was talking... There was one person preaching. It says that God was giving people fillings in their teeth. He was filling their teeth with, with gold. They needed the tooth filled. They would use gold. I say, wow, that's really significant. But I'm figuring that if God is issuing gold teeth, gold fillings in our teeth, 
Why doesn't he just give us new teeth? It'd be a whole lot cheaper. It would be a lot less expensive for me than all this money I put into the dental work. It'd be better if God just gave... Folks, be careful what you hear. Be careful what you read. Don't listen to some of this stuff out there that just absolutely is, is foreign to Scripture. It doesn't make sense. Listen to what the Word of God is telling you. Be careful who and what you read. Now then, take note of the word no in verse 13. You see the word no, K-N-O-W. In fact, if you look through the, the whole of our text, you will find the word no some seven times. The word no, K-N-O-W, is found seven times from verses 13 through verse 20. Seven times. Six of those times, it all has the same Greek word oida. But one time, one time and one time only, it has the Greek word gnosko, and that is significant. I want to share that with you today, because we need to know what the truth is. When you use the word oida, this word means to perceive, to understand, to have intuitive knowledge, or it is instinctive within you. It's like, I know who I am. I just know that I know that I know. I know, I know. Perception. Intuitiveness. It's instinctive. I know in my heart that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. I just know it. I know Him. You will find this word for no in verse 13, the word oida for no. Verse 13, verse 15, verse 15 again, verse 18, verse 19, verse 20. You will also notice that no is found twice in verse 20. The final time it's used in verse 20, the Greek word is not oida but gnosko. And it means, it means to have an acquired knowledge, not an intuitive knowledge, not instinctive, but something that you learned, something that just hit you. Oh, man, it, I just realized this. I come to recognize this. This is true. It just now hit me today. Do you understand? There is that you know intuitively, you know instinctively. That's oida. I just know that I know that I know. And then there is no in a sense of gnosko. I just found this out. Well, amazing. I recognize who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. I just found out today. That's to know. Two knows. Oida and Gnosko. Let me give you an example here. In John chapter 14 and verse 7, we read, If you had known me, that's Jesus speaking, if you had known me, the word for known in there. There is the word gnosko. If you had come to recognize who I am. That's what he's saying. If you had realized who I am, then he says, you would have known my father also. And the word for knowing the father is oida. If you recognize me, if you recognize me, Jesus is saying, you would instinctively know my father. Because I and my father are what? One. 
Folks, that's important. When you come to know Jesus, you need, a, you need, then you get to learn who God is. You get to know God because Jesus is God. If you know me, you know my Father because I and the Father are one. But the, the, the key is that you've got to come to the place in your life where you recognize who Jesus Christ is. You've got to know him, gnosko. You've got, you have to come to the realization of who he is. And then after you realize who he is, you gnosko him. You get to know him. Then you oida, you get to know the Father. Because then it's Christ in you then. And he reveals himself to you that you have God in you. Guys, I tell you, if, if that statement, there should be burning wet wood. I, if, if you're listening to this today and that, and that doesn't hit you somehow, then we gotta, we, we're, we're going to have to try to help you some, somewhere along the line here. Look at verses 14 and 15. This, this, is, this is so rich. Verses 14 and 15. It speaks to us concerning prayer. You see, verse 14 says, This is the confidence which we have in him, or before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Okay? Now, I know we pray prayers like that. I know we do. And if we know, if we know oida, if we know intuitively, if we know instinctively, if we know, if we perceive it, if there's perception, and, if we, and we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know, Oida again, that we have the request which we have asked from him. That you know instinctively. But here's the thing. First of all, it should be clear to us, to all of us who are believers, that we have the absolute freedom. Listen, you have the absolute freedom to go to God at any time. You don't have to wait and go to some minister somewhere and have him be your... your listen, there is, there's only one mediator between man and God, and that's Jesus Christ, not some person. You can go to him anytime, at any place, and under any circumstance you might, you might find yourself in. And have the confidence that he hears you. In Hebrews 4.16... It says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Now, that's a promise that God's given you, right? Listen, the confidence to go to God in prayer is simply based on one fact. And you say, well, that fact is that I'm a Christian. Well, that's true. But that's not the main fact. Why, why do we have the confidence that we can go to God at any time and prayer is essential? Why do we have that confidence? Because one simple thing it is because what the scripture says in that verse, that he hears us, verse 14. We go to God because we know, oida, intuitively, we know that God hears us. It's not, you know, people say, oh, pastor, my prayers aren't, they're, they're, they don't get past the ceiling. Since when is God attached to the ceiling of your home? 
Is that you up there, God? Get down off the ceiling. I got to paint it. (laughs) Folks, listen. God does not reside in the ceiling. God resides where? What needs to happen is the prayer that you're praying, that, that you're thinking the thoughts up here, don't need to go up this way. They need to go down this way. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul tells the church of Colossae, doesn't he? Christ in you, Christ in you, Christ in you. When you pray, Christ in you. It's not going to the ceiling. Let it penetrate deep into the inner being of your soul because that's where Christ is. It's Christ in your spirit, Christ in your life. You are his, you're his possession. He's not attached to the ceiling or whatever whether you're in church or you're at home or you're in a basilica somewhere, listen, God's not in the ceiling. He's in your heart. However, when we pray, we must keep in mind that we are to ask, ask verse 14. It says, ask according to his will. And then there's another thing to consider here, and that is found in 1 John 3, 22. You know, he says, ask according to his will. But look at 1 John 3, 22. You see what that says right there? And it says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So on the one hand, we have the condition of answer prayer being God's will being done. And on the other hand, we find in 1 John 3, 22 that our conduct Listen, our conduct, our behavior is to be in line with God's commands. You know, in the old church covenant, we don't, unfortunately, there are so many unfortunate things we don't do anymore. Unfortunately, we don't have the old church constitution where it says, I will walk circumspectly in this world. That means my behavior will be in line with the belief of Scripture. That I will walk in a manner that is in accordance with the calling that I have from God. That when God has saved us, that God has caused us to be his ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. That we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. That because I'm an ambassador, you are an ambassador. That our walk ought to be circumspect. Our behavior, our conduct ought to be in line with the calling which we have from God. We are called to be his priests. His possession. We are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We should be walking in a way, I don't mean just walking like this, but our life, our conduct, our behavior should be in accordance with the Word of God. When we read that, they say, listen, when my life is a standard as much as is within me, a standard that is is God's standard, that when you pray to God, guess what? Because you are walking in accordance with his commands to be obedient to him. Now, there are those that take this ver- or a verse from one place or another and use it to teach others that God is somehow obligated to do whatever we in faith pray for. You know, there's a thing called context in Scripture. How many times have you, you say, well, you know, my favorite verse, and you'll, you'll pull this one verse out, you know, and say, Romans 8, 28, oh, listen, everybody loves Romans 8, 28, for we know that 
all th- God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those called according to his purpose. And we'll take that verse and say, Man, that's my life verse. What about the rest of the context of that? Are we just going to rip that one verse out and not think? You know, there's a thing in, 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 in Scripture called uh, the pericope. It's called, it's, it's, a narr- it's, it's the, the whole context. It might be four or five or six verses, but it's a whole thought. That, that whole thought is, should be put together in Scripture. You don't just rip out a verse. That's like saying, well, I'm going to go out today, but, you know, I don't think I'll wear my pants. You're going to get fully dressed, right? Hopefully, maybe different today. But you, got, you get fully dressed. Well, when you read Scripture, dress yourself completely in that Scripture. Read the first to the last verse. It all fits that, that thought. So when you read Romans 8, 28, you know what? Have you discovered there's a verse 29 and 30 and 31 to that? Read it all together, because if it says all things work together for good, you know what? Have you found in your life that everything works together for good? But your life is just running smooth and silky, just like a Chinese balloon flying over America, just <laughs> smooth sailing all the way. But I'm going to tell you something. If you think that's true, there's coming a day when it's going to pop, isn't it? Romans 8, 28, if I can just, I won't even charge you for this, I just, Romans 8, 28, do you know why it says all things work together for good? It's not that the stuff is what we're looking at, like this, that, and the other, it's that when you read that verse, it says that God foreknows us, that God has foreknown us, it says that God has predestined us, that God has called us, that God has justified us, that God has sanctified us, that God is someday going to glorify us. Listen, what is good about that is no matter what, what happens on earth, whether heaven or hell happen, that all this might happen in life and just your life is just crumbling in. There is still this happening in your life that you know that you know that you know that God has called you and that God is going to keep you. You know that. All things, whatever happens in my life, the good, the bad, the ugly, all those things are far inferior to the fact that someday that God is going to give me a new glorified body and I will be seated with Him in glory forever and ever and ever. What a blessed assurance that is. It's just not what happens in my life in this earth. This is so temporal. Besides, I don't know if you know this or not, but as old as I am, there's very little left out there. I want to press on. Listen, some, folks, someday I'm going to cross, and you are too. We're going to cross Jordan's River, aren't we? And we're going to enter into God's promised land, and we'll be there forever. That's the good stuff. All things work together for good. Because God is going to present you, and God's going to present me with a glorified body. Folks, we're winners. John 15, 7 says, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. There's people who say, well, just ask God. He'll give it to you. Yeah, just ask Him. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. If I just, man, if I'm just pleased with God, just please His punch. 
He's going to give me whatever I want. Lord, I need a new car. Please let it be a Ferrari. Then you wake up, and instead of a Ferrari in your garage, you find a Festiva in there. Folks, notice something here. There are specific conditions that accompany these promises. In John 15, 7, it's not just a matter of asking God. It's a matter of a person's abiding in Jesus Christ that makes the difference. They are fully in tune with the person of Jesus and conform to the will of God. So here the issue is not what I want, but what does God want? That I want to, I want to ask things of God that God desires, that God wants. God wants me to be a godly person. God wants me to walk uprightly. That means to walk with righteousness. God wants me to be loving and kind. God wants me to be patient. God wants me to be his witness. God wants me to be faithful to his word. Those things that God desires, that's what I should be desiring. That's what you should be desiring. Not that I get a Porsche or a or Lamborghini so I can get to church fast or whatever. But what does God desire? This is also true for Psalm 37.4. If you delight in the will of God, you delight in the will of God, you should get what you ask. Because if you delight in the will of God, you're asking in accordance with the will of God. So ask yourself this question. Does my heart's desire line up with that which God desires. Are you, are you asking for what you want or are you asking for what God wants? This is a question. Look at verse 16. This is, a, this is a dandy verse. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask of God, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. And then here's the trouble part, because people say, what does that mean, preacher? There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that we should make requests for this. Verse 16. This verse might seem difficult on the surface, so let's take a look at it. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, you know, when, when we're going to interpret Scripture, let's, let's interpret it accurately, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we do that properly and accurately. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul writing to a young peer of his, contemporary of his, young guy by the name of Timothy, says that he should accurately handle the word of truth. A workman needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing, King James, rightly dividing the word of truth. That means accurately handling, accurately interpreting the scripture. So let's do that then. First off, the word death in verse 16, you see that the word death in verse 16 must align itself with the word life in verse 13. Now, why is that so? Because if you look at verse 13, it says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And then he talks about, all of a sudden, he, he talks about life, and that's, that's his theme here, life, eternal life. And then when you get to verse 16, all of a sudden, he's talking about death. 
So whatever life is, death has to be that exact opposite of it. So let's, let's look at it. If death is, in, is understood as physical death in verse 16, then life must also be understood as physical life in verse 13. Life in 13 and death in 16 must, it's either going to be physical or spiritual. You can't just pick and choose what one is, the other one's got to be. Okay, that's the, way it, that's the way it works. What one is, the other one's got to be the same thing. If it's physical, then they both have to be physical. If it's spiritual, they both have to be spiritual. However, we are aware that John is speaking of, in verse 13, speaking of life in the spiritual or the eternal sense, isn't he? Not talking about physical life. Not a life that we're going to continue to live here on earth and grow older and older. I guess that if that were true, then we could walk up to a person and say, you know, wow, you look like a million. You'll get that. Okay. If we keep on living, you'll get to be a million years old. Some people look like a million. So then, what, <laughs> what both life and death are to be understood as is in a person's eternal state. That life is talking about eternal life, and he's talking about death. He's talking about the eternal death or spiritual death as well. Not physical, but spiritual. Hold on to that. The second thing we need to know, since we understand life and death as spiritual in nature, we can go back to 1 John chapter 5. Look at this. Look at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 12. Let me read this for you. 1 John 5, 12 says, He... Read along with me. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life, which means he has what? If he does not have life, he has what? Death. If you look at 1 John 5, 12, then you, it makes sense to you. Note, when he says does not have life, doesn't mean that the person is physically dead. It means that he is spiritually dead. How do we know this? Let's rightly divide the word of truth. What does Ephesians 2.1 say? That we are dead in trespasses and sins. He's talking about people that are dead in trespasses. It doesn't mean that they're physically dead. It means that they are dead, separated from God, spiritually, spiritually dead to God. Separated from Him. He's talking about here, dead in trespasses and sins. That kind of death. Third, what John's speaking of in verse 16 is a specific sin. Not the fact that we just sin. But a specific sin that brings about spiritual death and separation from God. What would that sin be? What would be that sin that is absolutely, that even if you prayed for it, if you said, listen, I commit my sin, you know, this is the sin that's in my life, but Lord, please forgive me of that. I'm, I'm going to continue to believe this, but just forgive me of that, even though I believe my, my interpretation is right. Lord, for, Bible says no, no there's, no, there's no pardon for this sin. Can't do it. So what is that sin? Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 18, 19, and 22. In 1 John 2, 18, 19, and 22. John writes, children, it is the last hour. That means the end of the world's coming is what he's saying. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, 
Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Verse 19. They went out from us. Listen, these Antichrists, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. Verse 22. Who is a liar? But the one who denies that Jesus, are you getting this? Who's the liar? The one that denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So what we have here, John's addressing the fact that there are Antichrists who are in this world. Even today, there are Antichrists. They're anti-Christian. They're against Christ. They're against the Christ- Christianity. They're opposed to the church. They do not like you and I. From all appearances, it seems that John is saying that to deny, listen very carefully, to deny the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When I say the incarnation, I'm talking about that Jesus Christ is God who took upon himself human flesh. He therefore possesses both a divine and a human nature, fully God and fully man. To deny that, he says, there is nothing that you can pray that will fix that. If you, if you hold that view, and you say, I do not believe that Jesus is both God and man. Even if you pray about it, you can pray all you want about it. If you maintain that view, you're finished. There is no, there is no cure for that. It's a sin that leads to death. To deny that Jesus is God and human. 100% God, 100% 100 human. To deny that, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Folks, when you get to glory someday, you know who you're going to see up there? Jesus Christ in human form. The way the, the disciples saw him after he was resurrected, they saw him, didn't they? Jesus, touch me. Right? Didn't he? Thomas, come here. Touch me. They recognized his face. Recognized the scars in his hands. Thomas, touch me. It's me. That's the Jesus that we're going to see. To deny that Jesus is human and divine. What hope have you? This sin can only be committed by an unregenerate unsaved person and at the same time that person makes a claim to be a Christian but that person who says I'm a Christian but they deny that Jesus is the, is the God man he's done as one pastor said that's all she wrote said the billy goat look at verse 18 we know oida We know that no one who is born of God sins. Guess what? You and I still sin, don't we? We're born of God and we still sin. What does he mean right there? If you would, please turn to 1 John 3, 9. We'll link the scripture interpret this for us. 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. He's talking about, when he says no one sins, he's talking about habitual sin. If you say that you're a Christian and you live like the devil, 
Something's wrong. You can't just be a Christian on Sunday. You've got to be a Christian on Monday also, and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. That, that Christianity is with you 24-7. We know that no one who's born of God habitually sins. That word know, again, is oida. We understand, we perceive, we intuitively, instinctively know it. We know it. Verse 19, we know, oida, that we are of God. We are born, we are born from above and are God's children. Oida, we know instinctively that God saved us. We know intuitively that we are his children. We, just, we know it like we know ourselves. I know me. And I know God. We know it. Verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come. Oida. We know that Jesus came to earth. He condescended, left the throne of glory, and became a man. We, we know that. Again, John is here speaking of the incarnation. And he says, and he has given us understanding. This term, he has given us understanding, this is God's grace poured into our minds and our hearts so that we may have biblical knowledge and understanding. Folks, what this says is this. If we know this, we cannot say that we're Christian and yet have this repulsive attitude towards Scripture. That when you say that you are born again, there must be some love for the Word of God. There's got to be some love for the Word of God. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense if you say, oh, I love Jesus. I know that Jesus is in my life, but man, I don't want to spend any time looking at the Bible. Oh, man, I go to church and all I do is talk about the Bible. Yeah. Well, we can pull up Marvel comic books, I suppose, but that, I don't think that'll work very well. You know, we, we, I tell you what you do in church. Let's have a big laser light show. That will really bring a lot of people to Christ, won't it? No, it won't. It's the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, right? Listen to the Word of God. Let's go on. Verse 20. This is a dandy. This is the last no of John's epistle. Look at verse 20. It says, that we, so that we may know him who is true. That word there is not oida. It's not that you would know intuitively, instinctively, full perception of, full recognition. No, 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 no. This word, gnosko, that you come, you come to an understanding. Like, like it hit you like a ton of bricks. I've come to understand I come to realize that Jesus Christ is God. Today, this morning, I got one more minute this morning. This morning before it hits 12 o'clock, let me tell you something. Maybe there's someone here, it just hit them today that Jesus Christ is God. Fully God, fully man. It just hit you. You came to that understanding today. You recognize that Jesus Christ is God. Not that you intuitively knew it. 
But somehow the Holy Spirit of God worked in your heart and he opened up your heart to believe. You've come to this understanding of who Jesus is today. And friends, that, that what I just spoke of, you come to this realization who God is, it is only accomplished by God's gracious act toward us. We are drawn to Christ not on our own ability. Listen, you're drawn to Christ not on your own ability. We are spiritually dead. I said we're, you are spiritually dead because of sin. We're, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You belong to the prince of the power of the air. You're held captive to Satan. You're, you're held in bondage to Satan. And listen to these words found in, in John 1.13. Just to clarify things with you. John 1.13, uh, the, the gospel, not the epistle. John 1.13. Talks about people who, were, who come to know Christ. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You come to eternal life because God has done a work in your life. He's opened your heart up to believe who He is. God has done that. I love this song. Again, it's one of those old, old hymns that is probably locked up in the closet somewhere in many churches. But let me just recite these words for you. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. God does it all. This morning, my friends, listen. If God has worked in your heart through his Holy Spirit has opened your heart up to believe and say, I believe today for the first time I've come to know, gnosko, I've come to recognize who Jesus is. And now because I have met Jesus, I am not gone from gnosko to now I'm one of the oida people. I know instinctively, I know intuitively that he's here. Today, friends, Today is a day of salvation. God speaking to you. Would you today come forward and say, Pastor, I just met Jesus. And now I know. Would you do that today?